You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We start at chapter 3. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, again. And we started chapter 3, oh, in August of this year, I think it was. And uh, in that time together, we looked at verses 1 through 5. The topic was comfort for believers. And we looked at the way Paul and his co-laborers attended to the needs of the believers in Thessalonica. They had been unceremoniously ushered and roughly ushered out of Thessalonica, as you saw in the Scripture reading this morning, uh, chapter th- uh, Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9, uh, before they felt that they had an opportunity to, at least in their own minds, spend the time necessary there with that body to give them the foundation they believed they would need to, st- to stand the struggles that, the, that, the life, that life had to throw at them. There were three observations. Uh, well, actually, we looked at the, f- the first five verses. We looked at the heart of a pastor who delighted in serving God and who loved the brethren, and he had opportunity to bring the gospel to. We looked at that. Those five verses were full of biblical truth regarding the ways that an under-shepherd can tend to the needs of the body of Christ. Now, I use the word under-shepherd advisedly because that's what, that's what elders in a church are, and with emphasis on the word under. <laughs> The five, or the, excuse me, the three observations we made, I need a course in remedial math, but the three observations we made is, number one, they won't leave believers alone and unhelped, verses one and two. Number two, they won't minimize the fact that believers will be afflicted, verses three and four. We'll talk about that again today. And number three, they won't ignore the possibility of apostasy, verse five. So Paul, even though he really needed Timothy in Athens, he, he needed his help. He needed his companionship. He was headed into a city that was dark, very dark. Um, we think that everything is the worst it's ever been today. Well, in the days of the apostles, it was the worst that had ever been in their day. And uh, Paul had to go into Athens. Didn't have to. Yeah, he did, because he was com- his, he had a compulsion, which was to preach the gospel. He had to go into Athens and and bring the gospel to that dark city. And he could have used Timothy. But he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to be a blessing to them. Further, he didn't shrink back from letting the Thessalonicans know that they would be persecuted, as will all who will live godly in Christ Jesus. Finally, he tackled the possibility of apostasy, but it was clear from his words that he did not expect that from this new group. Paul was, Paul had seen the Holy Spirit at work in believers, in other believers, and he knew the truth of the scripture. And just as he told the Galatians, he believed that in this little church, the one who had begun a good work in them would bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Is that not a comfort to know that it is Christ, it is himself, who will bring the work in your life to completion, that you don't have to depend on men? What what a comfort that is. With that as kind of a short review, normally my reviews take a lot of time because it's been a long time since I've been with you, but it's only been a few months this time. With that as a short review, we'll, we'll take a look at the next five verses in chapter 3. So let's look at chapter 3, and I'm going to read um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 to give us context. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, 
when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left at Athens alone, behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So the first thing he says, continuing a look at how our, an under-shepherd can properly serve the body of Christ. So that's what this section seems to speak, is so that we know how an under-shepherd, a pastor, an elder should act in the body of Christ, and how they should be, how they should live. We're going to see in the next five verses, we're going to look at three things, how an under-shepherd delights in those he serves. An under-shepherd is grateful for those he serves. And an under-shepherd seeks the growth of those he serves. So First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Written very soon after Timothy returned, it seems, because of the way this is worded, the structure of the grammar here, Paul focused on the good news of faith and love, and that there was a deep-seated longing to see Paul and the apostles again. And they, Paul and the, his co-workers, had that same longing. They wanted to see the believers at Thessalonica again. Paul didn't wait to let Timothy's report percolate, it seems. <laughs> he, uh, it was that good of a chronicle of the faith that had been growing in those young Thessalonians, that young church, I should say, because there would have been every age group in the church. These are always music These things are always music to the ears of those responsible to shepherd the flock of Christ. When an elder hears that those under his care are defending the faith uh, ably, they're living it out in a manner that is speaking to the culture around them, and they are defending the faith ably. They They are demonstrating the love that only comes from the Father of lights. He is even more stimulated to love and good works, that elder is. It is a blessing beyond measure to know and see the Scripture being lived out in people's lives. Hear the Greek word for good news, by the way. This is an interesting little construction. It's almost, well, in all of Paul's other writings, it's only used of the gospel. The evangelion, the good news, the euangelion in Greek. Here he uses it to talk about the good news that came from Thessalonica, because this was good news. He was, he used it to recognize that they were continuing to love both the bringer of the message and one another. It was a remarkable statement. It was a wonderful report. He speaks of the Thessalonians' faith, their love, and their kind thoughts, and their longing to see us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds his listeners that even as those two qualities are together, they render someone's knowledge useful. In 2 Corinthians, 
Faith and love are linked to being able to bless others with gifts and kindness. He uses these two words together some 18 times in his epistles, faith and love. In Ephesians, Paul reminds the brethren, and, and I'm not giving the, the um, address so that you'll be prompted to look it up. It's good reading. In Ephesians, Paul reminds his brethren that the true faith and love that comes with trusting Christ results in the indwelling Christ himself. Later in 1 Thessalonians, he will use this combination of faith and love as a picture of the armor, much as he did in Galatians, or excuse me, in Ephesians. In 1 Timothy, he calls these two qualities the actual goal of, an, of his entire instruction, so much so that he reminds Timothy that even though he's young, Timothy was young, even though you're young, if you demonstrate these two qualities, you are a worthy example to all who believe. Do you hear that, young believer? Young person in church here, Kootenai community? Did you know that your faith and your love are not, are not just a blessing to, to those around you, but a challenge to your mentors? You've brought the gift back to them when you walk in Christ. I see so many young people in this, in this body who love Christ and who are living out the truths of the gospel every day. It is both a blessing to me and a challenge in the proper way to press on to become more like Christ. I even had one tell me this morning, he likes the fact that I use the word under-shepherd. He studies the word. This is a teenager. No, I'm not going to say that. Like it's some sort of pejorative. He's a young man who loves the Lord. He studies the word, and he understands why I'm using a particular word. Well, that's just like the bee's knees. Can I say that? He challenges, he and those others challenge the elders to press on to be more like Christ. So you're doing the work, young people, and it's a marvel to see. Later, in 2 Timothy, using focusing back on these two words, faith and love, Paul reminds his young charge, Timothy, that an improper faith and love destroys people, and that the sound words he gave to Timothy result in proper faith and love. Calvin said it this way. He said, faith and love. This form of expression should be the more carefully observed by us in proportion to the frequency with which it is made use of by Paul. For in these two words, he comprehends briefly the entire sum of true piety. Hence, all that aim at this twofold mark during their whole life are beyond all risk of erring. All others, however much they may torture themselves, wander miserably." And indeed, as Rick mentioned, or as Jeff mentioned this morning in his Sunday school teaching, the goal of instruction is, is love, faith and love from a sound mind. Paul also speaks with joy of the news that the Thessalonians always also thought kindly of him. He brought hard news to them. Remember, we talked about the last time we were together. He didn't, he didn't shrink back from telling them, you're going to struggle. You're going to be afflicted. The world's going to hate you. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on. You didn't know that, did you? The world was going to hate you. You may not have when you first became a Christian. Because you were one of the elect, it wouldn't have stopped you. But it might have made your entrance into to life a little more sobering, thoughtfully and, th and sobering. <laughs> Remember, we talked about the fact that he told them they would suffer if they became followers of Christ. The genuine good news of the gospel will never minimize the bad news of the world. Insulating people from what can happen to them when they trust Christ is a disservice to them. It is not necessary to wax eloquent about how evil the world is. 
a simple reminder that the world hated Christ and that Christ promised his followers a proportion of that hate is enough. In fact, why don't we just see what the Scripture says? You know things like this. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. So the world, believers have come out of the world, and the world hates that. John fifteen eighteen. The world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Matthew ten twenty two, You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. Beloved, don't be surprised. This is now, this is not scripture. This is me. Because <laughs> the scripture often uses the word beloved. I don't want you to be confused. The world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you love Christ, the world will hate you. John 3, 19 and 21 through 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Imagine someone who hates it when you come into the room and turn the light on. This is the world. You try to turn the light on to show them the truth of the gospel and they will hate you for it. But there will be some who will bless you for that. Remember that. There will be some who will bless you for it. Always remember that. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Proverbs 12.1. Well, let me back up for the wrath of God. There will always be those who hate the truth. The world wants to suppress the truth so that they can continue to live in their unrighteousness. Anyone who wants to continue to live in unrighteousness whether it be an unbeliever or a believer who's struggling in sin, will try to suppress the truth so that they can continue to live in that unrighteousness. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. The world will always mistake a proper loving rebuke of sin as hate. Let me say that again. The world will, re- will always... Let me read it again. We'll always mistake a proper loving rebuke of sin as hate. And for that, they will hate you. You may lovingly attempt to correct someone about something like homosexuality or abortion or lying or, or fornication or, or whatever sin there is. And you will be viewed as hard and unloving. When in fact, the loving thing to do is to bring someone to Christ in repentance for their sin. Actually, we don't bring them. The Holy Spirit does. But it's to give them the gospel so that they can come to Christ and repent of their, of their sin. For only then does healing come. But the world will hate you for bringing that truth. Exodus 23, 2. This is an interesting one. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. The world follows the big molders of opinion. They follow the crowd. The heart of a Christian is to test all things and to hold fast to that which is, to, which is true. And the world hates this. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Has anyone ever told you that the gospel's foolish? That it's silly? That it seems stupid? They cannot apprehend it until Christ comes into their heart and comes in and regenerates them so that they can understand it. Keep teaching it. Keep saying it. 
because there will be those who will understand it. But the world thinks you're stupid. They think the things of the gospel are foolish. We have to recognize that they are spiritually discerned, and only after regeneration can someone understand and embrace, embrace them as the truths of Scripture. The gospel is the doorway to that, among other things. Acts 19, 24 through 27. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically there were silversmiths in uh, one of the towns that Paul had visited, and the gospel was fouling up their business. It was reducing their income because they were losing adherence to a faith that required that you buy their silver statues. And then there was this girl that, uh, let's see, there was a girl in Acts chapter 16 who was making a great deal of money for her handlers by telling fortune. The simple fact is that the under, what's the, the bottom line of the world is diminished, can be diminished by the gospel, and they will hate you for that. Because the gospel is not about making money. What's truly reprehensible is that those who wear the guise of Christian in the church are preaching that you can be rich and famous if you'll just do certain things. You can be rich or healthy or wealthy. None of the gospel teaches that. And it is those who are the most reprehensible that they would lead people astray. We've talked about that. Actually, I think it was brought up in Sunday school too. (laughs) No, we don't collaborate. I think we just read the same Bible. There's a great deal more, but that suffices for now. I don't want to barrage you with the fact that the world hates you. Did any of you have, did you know the world hates you? You can nod your head. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. It should. Do not be surprised. Don't use it necessarily as a litmus test to see if you're doing right. Always test all things from Scripture And hold fast to the truth. But if the world hates what you're saying, if the world hates what you're doing, and you're doing it out of a, out of love, odds are you're in the right track. But always come back to scripture. Paul was also delighted to know that the people he had invested his life in longed to see him. These are the people that he told that the world was going to hate him. He probably, I know he preached to them much more eloquently than I just did. He told them that the world would hate them and they longed to see him again. The verb translated longing has an intensity of purpose. Timothy had apparently told Paul that the believers in Thessalonica missed him terribly. What a balm to Paul's wounds that the world was giving to him. He was a blessed man, and he truly delighted in those he served. Verse 7, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. The distress and affliction that Paul and others were facing was very real. In, in many, if not most of the places they went, they were rejected, hated, and run out of town. Hearing about a church body that had received the gospel and had put to work so quickly was incredibly comforting. Let's face it, in this life, good news like that makes the work more than worth it. For it is work to build up others, as I'm sure you know, but not a project. It's loving work. No, they were an, people are an object of love and concern. And so this is what the body of the Thessalonian believers was, was to Paul and his companions. They were a blessing beyond measure, a delight, somebody they wanted to see again really badly. In any proper church of the living God, this is the relationship that you will find between the brethren there. Even while people are going through difficulties, they will want to invest themselves in other people's lives. If we all said, well, I'll wait till things are good with me and then I'll help someone else out. 
How's that going to work out? It's not going to work out because we will always be struggling through things. More than likely, that's what makes us, by God's grace, most useful to others. Not more than likely. That is why one of the things by God's grace. If we all waited till things were perfect in our lives to begin investing in the lives of others, nothing would get done. When has difficulty ever ceased in your life? Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, okay. With Paul, the difficulties were multiplied by his own choice, of course, as he traveled throughout the known world to plant the gospel. It was a dangerous and often thankless work. To receive a report like this was fantastic. One commentator noted that although Paul and his co-workers had been, quote, expelled from one place after another in Macedonia, Paul and the others might well have wondered if in spite of their confident interpretation of the call of God in Acts chapter 16, they had been divinely guided to that province after all. They had no reason to expect more positive acceptance in Achaia to which they had now perforce come. But Timothy's report on the state of the Thessalonian church dissipated their fears. The gospel had taken firm root in the capital city of Macedonia. The seed had been sown in fertile ground, and the fruit was already beginning to appear. If the Thessalonians had not allowed the tribulations to destroy their Christian faith and love, Paul and Silvanus found in this good news a sovereign remedy for their own distress and affliction. So now here's where I get off the horse I saddled and rode into church today, and I get on an unsaddled, untrained horse. So, so the Lord, by His choice has called four of us to serve this church as under-shepherds. And I'm here to tell you, and other elders, <laughs> they go, what's he going to say? I've had people come to me recently with difficulties and, and, and terrible things, hard things going on in their lives. And I've been blessed that they came to me. And I've had some of them relate, well, you seem so busy. If I'm too busy then somebody needs to kick my legs out from under me. This is what I'm here for. You are what elders are called for. And we find it a blessing and a delight to be able to serve you. And if it ever goes to our heads, I know you'll take care of that because this is a church that studies the Word of God. We want to be used by God. We want to be a blessing to you. And if I act too busy, then those of you that are more bold out there, confront me. Because I'm not. I'm not too busy. Neither is Dave. (laughs) Dave's not here to defend himself. (laughs) Neither is Jess. Marsha, don't hurt me after the service. Jim's on vacation, a well-deserved vacation. But our desire is to be a blessing and a service and a ministry. And we truly believe that the word under means under. We are under the great shepherd. He has called people to this kind of work. And we're always looking for others. There'll be an opportunity for that in the, future, in, the, in the near days to come, I think. And so now some of you are terrified. That's good. One of the requirements that I believe an elder needs to have in his life is he needs to remain terrified his entire life, properly terrified, if you will. Okay, now I'm going to get back on the horse. For now we really live, verse 8. If you stand firm in the Lord, this report was so fantastic that Paul writes here what naturally flowed from his heart. As you truly stand in the Lord, he said to the Thessalonians, we can really live. Maybe many of you have heard the old funny about the billionaire who wanted to be buried in his Lamborghini. And when that happened, one of the onlookers 
inadvertently blurted out, Wow, man, that's really living. I don't think so. I don't think that's what this means. Paul said he was really living. I hardly think he used, I hardly think that that's what it meant. He uses the present tense here because this kind of news is one that sustains one throughout their entire life. One commentator said, this is more than physical life. It is the fullness of the Christian life. The fullness of seeing others walking strongly in the gospel. I would also take it that Paul's choice of words here, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, are significant. The word he uses for stand firm is a military term, which denotes an armed force holding their ground. This is just another form of Paul saying that what he said to the Philippians, that he was confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, good work among you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Just read what's on the paper, Razor. It is at once a terrifying thing to know that those who have given the gospel to, those we have given the gospel to will be persecuted. But it is also, as I mentioned earlier, a very comforting thing to know that it is God himself who has the responsibility of seeing them through to completion. It is God himself. Don't stop preaching the gospel. And so, hearing of the perseverance, especially in this young church, that Paul did not have the time he wished to have in giving them the foundations they would need to stand the storms, it was wondrous to him. And so this is, a, this is why Paul could say that it was the same kind of good news that the gospel was. Not exactly the same. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not minimizing the gospel. But this was good news when he heard that the Thessalonians were standing against affliction. It, it inspires it inspires us, as not as much as the gospel, but it's similar. It should be remembered those that, that when those who had received the gospel from Paul were unfaithful, can we think of a church that might have done that? The word Corinth comes to mind. And caved into sin and false teaching, when that happened, he was devastated. He even became depressed over the Corinthian church. And first, I think it's chapter 7, verse 6. I should have looked it up, but I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's it. He even became depressed. And God relieved that depression, how? By sending Titus to him with good news about the Corinthian church. The time, this, that time it was about the wayward Corinthians. We are made this way. It's one of the ways God works in us. When, we, when those we love follow Christ, even as it might seem to them, just plodding through the difficulties of pain in life, it, the pain that life brings, it brings joy to our hearts to see people holding fast to the Scripture. It renews our desire to pray for them. It sustains us. It draws us closer to the Lord Jesus himself. Your mothers, you mothers, you know this well. When you pour your life into a child, it results in both great agony and great joy. When they walk crooked, you spend countless time in prayer. When they walk according to the scriptures, your heart soars. It was this that inspired John to write. He said, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. This is true of physical children and spiritual children. This is too, this too shows that a proper under shepherd delights in those he serves and he is grateful. So this is so much so that though the world may be falling down around us, and it kind of looks like that, at least in some ways, if an under-shepherd sees those he is responsible for pressing on for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a balm. It is a delight, a blessing, and a wonder at once. Calvin again said this. He said, all pastors are reminded by this of the kind of relationship that ought to exist between them and the church. When things go well with the church, they are to count themselves happy. 
even though in other respects they are surrounded by much distress. On the other hand, however, if they see the building which they have constructed falling down, they are to die of they are to die of grief and sorrow, even though in other respects there is good success and prosperity. Unquote. Now, of course, we know that the Lord builds the church. In context, Calvin is simply talking about the relationship that exists between a vibrant church in the middle of a destructive world system, how it brings joy to the heart of those who are responsible to serve. And as Jim often relates, you will not find this from, i got to read this, from a skinny jean, ear-pierced, henna-tattooed, yellow brick road charlatan. I, I've always, you know, for years, back before I got involved here at Kootenai and, and I, when I was preaching in other places, we talk about um, prosperity preachers. Back then, I called them yellow brick road charlatans because who, who hasn't heard about the yellow brick road? If you just follow the yellow brick road, well, has anybody, maybe Wizard of Oz isn't watched anymore. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an old guy. Anyway, they're not the ones who are going to be there for you. They're not the one, they're not called, they're called, they think they're called to do this, to make money. Wrong kind of calling. This, so those who have been called to serve the church of God do so out of compulsion and out of love. The compulsion is from the Lord himself. The love is for the brethren. It's a good compulsion. And by the way, you'll always find here, that when we ask you to come to us with your needs and let us pray for you, and don't push on the pulpit, and let us pray for you, let us minister, let us help, let us do what we can, it's going to be in this church, it's elders, and they're going to be men. I'm looking into the camera. They're going to be men. They're going to be men called by God because that's what the Scripture says, and we adhere to sound doctrine. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? Paul asks a rhetorical question here in order to cast a special light on the fact that it was God himself who did the work in those at Thessalonica. They were standing strong not because of Paul. They were standing strong not because of Silvanus. They were standing strong not because of Timothy. They were standing strong because of God and because of the Word of God. Let that not ever be Unevident from here. Is that a word? Unevident. The rejoicing was given to Paul and his co-workers directly from God. Does the preacher take the credit for the good lives of his flock, of the flock he serves? Paul never did. His rejoicing was before God and his thanks was to God, and all of the credit went to God. So the good news Timothy brought inspired thanksgiving in Paul's heart to God. Under shepherds understand that it is God who does the work. It is not them. If it depended on men, the church wouldn't have lasted 40 minutes. But it's lasted 2,000 years because it depends on God. Paul uses his words, these words, um, thank, thanks, thank, or thankful in a positive way 32 times in his epistles. Now, this wasn't supposed to be a preaching addendum to the holiday we just celebrated, but I can't help mention that I did notice as I was working my way through this, that it lent itself very well to that idea. There isn't much in life that came to Paul that he wasn't thankful in some way or another for. He was thankful for those he served. He was thankful for grace. He was thankful for the gifts of the Spirit. He was thankful just to remember people. He was thankful that those he taught lived out the gospel. He was thankful for Christ Jesus. He was thankful in prayer 
for others. He was thankful when anyone came to Christ and became a slave of Christ rather than a slave of sin. He was thankful when believers were obedient to the word. He was thankful for those who risked their lives for him. He was thankful for the victory that comes in Christ. He was thankful for the prayers of others. He was thankful for the inheritance waiting for him. He was thankful for being one of the elect. And he was even thankful for the distress and difficulties that came his way because he stated that he delighted in them because they were an opportunity for God to work and for God to be glorified. And he was thankful for this, thankful for this young body in Thessalonica who had weathered the storms in their lives in such a way that when Timothy brought back a report about them, it was clear they were victorious because of God, because of the gospel. This delighted Paul. And so he carefully gives all the credit and all the glory to God. The rhetorical question he asked, how can we possibly properly thank God for what he has done in you is thus answered this way by continuing to serve him. In this, an under-shepherd demonstrates gratefulness for those he serves by continuing to serve. And then as we, we look at the last verse here, verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. True to form, Paul reminds the, Thess- the Thessalonians that he prays earnestly for them. The words here translated most earnestly are a double compound. Paul was fond of double compounds. They weren't common in the Greek of the day. But Paul was fond of them. And it is because of the inspiration of the, script, the Spirit here he puts that, that he is able to put into words what he's thinking. Now that we know that the inspiration is, we know that the inspiration of Scripture is perfect. And Paul said just what he needed to say. But here is a man, he may have actually been struggling with how to get this down on paper <clears throat> when he received this fabulous report from Timothy. He wants the Thessalonians to know how intense his prayer is for them. One could translate this, and I'm not claiming to be a Greek scholar or anything, but this is just kind of how it appeared to me. He, he was saying, as we night and day keep on praying over and above superabundantly that we may see your face. He wanted to see them again. This somewhat communicates the intensity of this prayer. Night and day, superabundantly, over the top praying. And he reminds them that he is looking for even more ways to bless them and sustain them and help them grow. He wants to be back with them. He wants to see them, not just hear from them. I truly think that when Paul said he prayed night and day, he really did. That's what the Scripture says. That's not to say that he prayed 24 hours a day. But his life was one of sustained petition to God for the many things that he was doing. When difficulties came, he turned to praying. When rejoicing came, he turned to prayer. When counseling issues came up, he turned to prayer. When the cares of the churches overwhelmed him, he turned to prayer. When good news came to him regarding the steadfastness of others, he turned to prayer. My dear wife resorts to prayer whenever difficulties come up in our lives. She always first thinks of that. I don't. And I'm supposed to. I think of, okay, now what can I do? How can I, how can I help? And, and, and she'll remind me, we need to pray. That's right. There's a good idea. And so we do. And I, I'm so grateful for that. And, and men, you know, they're the other, they're the other, sometimes more than the other half. They're the ones that often remind you of the things that are lacking. I'm so grateful for that. So, this is not how Paul lived the way I do. He was truly a man of prayer in the sense that prayer permeated his life. Now, I drink coffee black. But when you stir the cream into your coffee, it doesn't just set on the top. It doesn't sink to the bottom. What does it do? It mixes in. That's the idea. Prayer needs to be mixed into your life so that it's an everyday part of it. It's a part of every taste of life that comes your way. 
in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes more intense, sometimes quick, sometimes hours, sometimes from lists are okay, especially when you get my age. Now, what was that person's name? And I look him up in the church directory, and it doesn't have a picture. And I go, when is Jim going to get a picture there? So I know. <laughs> It's Jim's fault. Okay, so if I'm not praying for you, it's Jim's fault. That's the idea. It's mixed into your life. It becomes part of your life. It needs to be part of your life. God works through the prayers of His people. I can't give you a, a scientifically reasoned out thought there. But he says, I will work through prayer, and I believe him. Finally, Paul wants to continue the work that he started, and by the grace of God, be part of the ongoing sanctification of the, sub, of the Thessalonians, the ongoing day-to-day growth of the Thessalonians. The subject of what is lacking in the lives of the Thessalonians comes up again in chapters 4 and 5, where Paul lists some of the things that the Thessalonians need to grow in. And here's, here's just a, an abbreviated list. Here's the things that he felt were lacking in their lives. Now, this is because he got to know them, and he was he knew people that knew them, and he spent time finding out about them because he loved them. They needed, they needed extra help in sexual purity, chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. The love of the brethren, chapter 4, verse 10. A habit of minding their own business, chapter 4, 11. Proper attitude towards outsiders, chapters 4, 12. A correct theology regarding death. Chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11. They needed extra teaching regarding hard work. Chapter 4, 11. Do you know hard work is godly? It's a good thing. Can't we all just hug and take a nap after we've worked hard? Behavioral sobriety, chapter 4, verse 11. Hospitality, verse chapter 4, 12. Strict attention to the times in which they lived, chapter 5, 1 through 10. Mutual encouragement. These are areas that the, a good, functioning, vibrant church needed further taught teaching in. Mutual encouragement, 5, 11. Obedience to godly and proper leadership, chapter 5, 12 through 13. Biblical housekeeping regarding their behavior, 5, 14. Patience, 5, 14. Not responding to evil with evil, 5.15. Learn to be grateful and rejoice, 5.16. Maintain a robust prayer life, 5.17. Learning to give thanks for the good things in your life. That isn't what he said. Learning to give thanks for everything, 5.18. Being obedient to the Holy Spirit, 5.19. Learning to delight when Scripture demands that you change, 5.20. Carefully test the teaching you receive and cherish and hold fast to the truth, 521. And then last that I have here, at least, learn to recognize evil in all its forms and abstain from it, 522. These are some of the things that he felt needful to be involved in the sanctification of the Thessalonians. We will revisit these in much greater detail as we go through chapters 4 and 5. So that's probably going to be in 2023 and 2024. 2025, 26. My grandkids have told me a trillion times not to exaggerate. He seeks the growth of those he taught in Thessalonica. Indeed, he wants to see them victorious over the world, but more importantly, victorious over themselves in Christ. How would you know what is lacking in someone? How would we know? Well, you must spend time with them. For myself, when I see someone on the street with a sign... Homeless, you know, 
leave aside the fact that they've got a cell phone, two dogs, a nice lawn chair, nicer than my lawn chairs. And, but I'm joking here to some degree. I can't, I, I've, I've actually bought food for them and given it to them, but I'm not going to give them money. I need to get to know them. I need to get to know people. And I can't do that with everybody on the street, but I can here. And I'm work, that's one of the things I'm working on is to get to know each and every one of you better. The church has really grown. I mean, we don't have a full house today. And there's more here. Actually, we have more in our Sunday school than we used to have in church. And I love it. People who are thirsty for the Word of God. And as we bring it, God is, is glorified. Anyway, back to, I got off the horse again. How do you know what is lacking in someone? You must get to know them. So between his own personal visits and the reports of others, Paul had become to a knowledge of the needs of those in Thessalonica. A proper under-shepherd desires that those he serves grow in the graces of, of Christ, grow in the graces that characterize a vibrant Christian life. And so he looks for ways to build into those lives. Whether it's teaching the Word, counseling, or working alongside someone, there are many ways to build into the lives of others, but it must start with the gospel. It is notable here that Paul references completing the holes in their lives personally. He says, and I quote, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, unquote. The best way to work in the lives of others is personally, face-to-face. Letter writing and telephones have their place and email and all the other modern convenience. But with regard to discipleship and bringing people to completion in Christ, you can't substitute personal interaction. You just can't. And that's what this is some of, Sunday mornings, where we spend time together ministering to one another. And I've told you before, I like to stand and watch. It is such a delight to see people in this body finding out what each other needs and then figuring out ways to meet those needs. It's a picture of heaven on earth. It really is, at least to me. It's a picture of heaven on earth. In fact, our first significant interaction of how believers, or mention of how believers interacted is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So you must be together physically to break bread, by the way, together. I think there's no digital bread yet. There's digital money and digital stupidity, but I don't know that there's digital bread. And if there is, ignore it. So let us not be dissuaded from the gathering together of ourselves as the manner of some is. But in these days, most certainly we need one another. And it is in these gatherings where we devote ourselves to the teachings of Christ, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer that we most wonderfully love, learn of each other's needs and discover ways to minister to one another. So without reference to the list I just mentioned, Can we all acknowledge that there are things lacking in our lives? Can we also all acknowledge that God has provided everything we need in the Scriptures for life and godliness? So now I don't get a prompting. When I get a prompting, and I've heard that word a lot, and it's a good word, as one happened today, what happened to me, I believe biblically, was I was prompted to go to the Scripture and to prayer. What does the Word say about this? How can I minister the Word to someone in need? What does the Word say to me about this? What should I be doing about this? God will use His Word when He prompts you to direct you into the lives of others and how to be used in the lives of others. He won't use indigestion, which is what often what most people feel is. He will use His Word. 
His Holy Spirit will make his word, which you have hidden in your heart, that which prevents you from sinning and that which makes you useful to others. I I commend to you the reading of the Proverbs and of Psalm 119 to start with. The prompting of the Lord will direct you to the word of God and to prayer and then to service to others. And usually, most importantly, service without any recognition. If you're doing it for recognition, it's not service. It's a wage earner. And there's nothing wrong with wage earners. But when he directs us to serve one another, he's directing us for service. Okay, I got off the horse again. So the most important thing you need today is have you trusted Christ? Have you heard his call, which he directs to his elect? And have you trusted him? Have you repented from your sin? If you're a believer, you've done this. Is there something in your life? That, and there is, because we all have First John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, and now I'm making it plural. It's not plural in this, in this text. Maybe it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep the short accounts. If you're not a believer, you must trust Christ. There's no other way to heaven. No other way to properly serve others. No other way to live life like Paul said. If you want to live life like Paul said, you must trust Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.